This is EconoPolitics, the official podcast of the Economics and Politics section of LASA, the Latin American Studies Association. EconoPolitics aims to foster greater dialogue between academics and practitioners throughout the region and to discuss major regional issues. I'm Joseph Marks, host of EconoPolitics. Welcome to today's show. Welcome to another episode of EconoPolitics. I'm Joseph Marks, and our guest today is Keith Mines, Director for Latin America at the United States Institute for Peace, USIP, in Washington, D.C., and someone who's been following closely the situation in Venezuela, neighboring countries, and the region for a number of years now. Welcome, Keith. We're delighted to have you on the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Perhaps we should begin with a quick overview of um, the work done by USIP uh, throughout Latin America. Sure. Uh, So the U.S. Institute of Peace is a very interesting uh, government-funded but but independent institute founded by Congress in the 1980s with the idea that peace uh, deserves much more attention than it gets. How do we arrive at peaceful solutions to conflicts? How do we keep countries out of conflict? So it's a committed team of about 200 individuals uh, in in Washington and across the, the world that are working the seams of conflict and uh, looking at different aspects of anything from negotiations to post-conflict reconstruction, uh, the building of the institutions that help to uh, secure the peace. Uh, So a lot of different programs, analysis, convenings in Washington. Um, We kind of have a special place in all of this as being funded by the US government, but not uh, directly the US government. So we have a little bit of uh, independence that helps us to find creative solutions to things that are otherwise very difficult. And, and so if, regarding Latin America, USIP is yeah. involved Sorry, in- Sorry, right, USIP's, uh, our flagship program in Latin America has been Colombia for about the last 15 years where we were involved in the long search for peace there, mostly working on the issue of the inclusion of minorities and kind of the, the, the different uh, parts of the peace process that were not always uh, well focused on, <clears throat> and then uh, in the in the post FARC peace process period, looking at different elements of how to to strengthen that peace, um, and then beyond Colombia, we have programs in in Venezuela that I can talk about a little bit later, and uh, new program in Bolivia, uh, some work in in Nicaragua, and now we're starting to program in uh, northern Central America in El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. So that's the extent of our program. We look for the places where we have unique skills that can be brought to bear on on conflicts, uh, whether they are active shooting conflicts or whether they are social and political conflicts, but trying to help to bring uh, societies to a more peaceful uh, end state. Great. So let's get straight to it. Uh, The theme of the day is Venezuela. There have been a lot of um, recent uh, developments, high level visits, talks in Mexico. Give us, um, give us a summary of where we stand right now regarding Venezuela. So we've had a number of, of uh, important events over the past uh, four or five months. Of course, the elections in November were uh, an important thing. It wasn't a surprise that the regime came out on top, but it was interesting that the opposition at the, at the mayoral level, because they were also for, um, they had already won the, the National Assembly elections, but this was for the regional uh, governors and mayors. Now they won the governors. They put a lot of the regime, put a lot of emphasis on that. But with regards to the mayors, the opposition came out with about a third of the contests in their favor. So they came away with this, this local groundswell of, of mayors that uh, that are now with 
the opposition. And so that was in November. Again, this was just the mayoral and the um, the, the, governor, uh, the governor's uh, elections. And then uh, you had the, uh, the, the negotiations which have been going on in Mexico for some months. And uh, those came to a halt in November. Um, the regime walked out over its frustration uh, with the arrest of uh, Alex Saab, one of their confidants that was picked up uh, by the United States and was going to be or picked up by a, a Cabo Verde and then was going to be extradited to the United States, which he since has. So they walked out over that. Uh, the negotiations were a little tense even before that, so they weren't exactly progressing fast, but they were a platform and something that, that we certainly consider to be an important one. So where are the negotiations today? Both the opposition and Maduro have publicly stated they're committed to a negotiated solution. They both see that as the only end state. We tend to agree there's not a way uh, to end this conflict that doesn't involve negotiated solution, um, but there's no real um, intense interest or, or focus by either side on getting back to Mexico. They're actually starting to talk about maybe a a different platform for doing that. Um, the lead government negotiator, Jorge Rodriguez, has announced that he'll initiate public consultations with broad sectors of the opposition before they re-engage. Um, there's a kind of a technical part of that. The, the regime would like to see more, uh, kind of a broader representation on the, the, the negotiation platform. That's not why they walked out, but it's something that they're fixated on, that it's too narrow a representation of the opposition. The unitary platform on the other side uh, is reluctant to expand the opposition delegation to include other sectors um, that were not represented in the table in Mexico in August. So they would like to keep it where it is. It's a very complicated issue. So it's not a simple, there's not a simple way to expand that. It's understandable, I think, from their perspective, both perspectives, frankly. Um, and the US has talked about sanctions relief uh, being conditioned by meaningful progress in the negotiations. So the US is behind them getting back together. Um, again, it's a question of whether it has to be Mexico, whether there's a way to re-jigger uh, that platform, even do it someplace else. Mexico was a pretty good place though, because it's a, you know, it's a very, it's an established player. They're very good at, at hosting this sort of thing. Um, you know, they, they were not willing to go in and, and really do things within the negotiation uh, that they didn't see that as their role. They were the facilitator. So they were, you know, they were willing to participate, host up to a point, but we're not really going to get in and, and try to, you know, align interests and things like that. So, so that's where we are. I think, it, you know, again, there's, there's a, a will to go back on a certain level, but it's not pressing on either side. So on, on the U.S. side, who are the focal points? Who, who are sort of overseeing these negotiations and playing an important role? In terms of individuals or in, in interest? Uh, well, interagency or individuals. Uh, who's sort of the lead on, on this on this point? Yeah, the, there was in the Trump administration, there was always a bit of a conflict between the State Department and the NSC. We saw that uh, play out in some cases with even contradictory messages, not, you know, not consistent and not too big a deal, but it, it was it was evident if you look for it. Um, in this case, there's there's a real alignment between um, the White House, the, the State Department. There's no disconnect. Uh, they they coordinate closely. So Juan Gonzalez is the senior director at the NSC that is the one over Venezuela policy from the White House. And then in the State Department, uh, of course, it's Brian Nichols, the assistant secretary for Latin America and his team. 
And then uh, Roger Carstens actually has a very important role now, the, the special envoy for hostage affairs uh, because of the presence of, uh, I guess now there's two that were released. So still five CITCO mm -hmm. members, uh, CITCO uh, people that are imprisoned and then another three or so other Americans that were picked up for um, either mercenary activities or, or different things. So he's also very involved. And then Jimmy Story, our ambassador to Venezuela resident in Bogota is also a, a pretty key player. There's a lot of interest um, on the Hill. There's those that are pro-negotiation, a number of congresspersons that would like to see more movement on the negotiation side. Uh, there's those that are more seized with the maximum pressure campaign. And I think that if you try to boil it down to the two different approaches, um, and it, you know, it's not crystal clear which one is right, but um, you know, they're, they're very different approaches to Venezuela. One is that we continue, we the outside players continue to put maximum pressure on the regime. And then at some point it breaks and, and gives up. And that's one approach, which is, involves doubling down on sanctions and even uh, the, the kind of offhand military pressure that's been suggested and those sorts of things. And then the other side is that maximum pressure will never be enough. The regime can always outrun sanctions there's no military force that's gonna get involved. The Venezuelan people are not going to use force internally, not even in terms of mass demonstrations like we've seen in a lot of countries, that's just not what they will do. So given that, given that there's no force to be applied, this is kind of a fool's errand to think that uh, a quote unquote maximum pressure campaign is gonna be enough to displace a regime. So given that it's, it's better to negotiate whatever uh, can be achieved. Uh, and that comes down to a belief that there is a place for, for democratic coexistence between the two parties. And I would have to say personally, having worked on this now for four, almost five years, I'm really in the democratic coexistence camp. Um, I, I just, as a realist, I, I don't see where, again, the other side would ever have the, the pressure necessary to, uh, to dislodge a, a firmly entrenched regime. You talked about sanctions. Remind us of the type and the extent of the existing sanctions applied currently uh, against Venezuela. Right. So there's a there's a whole array of different sanctions, and they have they have they go all the way back all the way back to the Obama administration when sank the sanctions regime first started. And um, under the Obama administration, uh, the kind of the framework for sanctions was set up. And then from that, uh, which established Venezuela as a national security issue, and from that uh, baseline, it was then possible to add sanctions uh, almost at will. So there's been a succession of other sanctions that have been added, um, well, that were added with some frequency during the Trump administration. There has not been, I don't think there's been too many sanctions, if any, that have been added since then. They were pretty much maxed out uh, during the last administration, but there was a number of sanctions that started you know, with the individual sanctions of people involved in repression or uh, different members of the Maduro regime. Maduro himself, of course, was sanctioned and his wife, uh, Celia Flores. So there's been a whole succession of individual sanctions and then those kind of morphed into group sanctions against uh, groups of individuals like the National Assembly that was elected in what we considered a, a flawed election, the whole intelligence uh, apparatus at the senior level, things like that. So there's a lot of those kind of group sanctions. And then there's been the national sanctions. So sanctions on the banking sector, on the financial sector, and then of course on the oil sector. And those, there's a lot of those. Those are very complicated, very detailed, very technical. Uh, 
in terms of what they hit. And then there was a whole ring of what we call secondary sanctions that were implemented to try to tighten the noose, if you will, and bring and bring more um, pain, I guess, or more pressure on the regime by, by cutting off its ability even to, to traffic oil, to transit oil, um, uh, petroleum products. Uh, so a whole series of things that were also brought in again around that and uh, trying to, to hit countries that would be trafficking, that would be working with the Maduro regime. They've been somewhat effective uh, if measured in just bringing pain to the Venezuelan economy um, and, and getting the attention of, of, of those on, on the regime side and, and you know, giving them a reason, I guess, to, uh, to come to the table. So there's, you know, they certainly get people's attention, but they're not enough, uh, I don't think, ever to, uh, to dislodge a regime. And one of the issues I guess I would put up front on the, on the sanctions is it's hard, sometimes it's hard to align sanctions with objectives. So while in principle, there is something and every sanction has to have this, there's a you know, clause in there that describes what behavior would have to change to, uh, to lift those sanctions. So that's in there, but it's often very hard to line that up directly with something in the immediate term that is, that is desired, something that that uh, the U.S. would would want to get from those. So, so there's a number of us that are, and in both in Venezuela and outside, that are advocating something more like a roadmap uh, that was used in Sudan, where it's a little more clear what what the sanctions, what would need to be done to lift certain sanctions, and then those sanctions are applied, sort of a little bit more deliberately um, to to getting to a better place of of democratic uh, change. And there's things in that realm that uh, the opposition, certainly the broader opposition, considering also civil society would like to see. They're very seized in civil society with this thing they call reinstitutionalization, which is that in the midst of a protracted crisis, one that's gonna go on, it could still go on for years, hopefully not, but you know, it's gonna go on at least for a while, let's at least preserve whatever, whatever institutions we have. So things that would, you know, would help that would be not life-threatening to the regime, but so they would give, you know, they would be willing to work on this. The, the CNE, the, the National Electoral Council, the TSJ, the, the justice uh, sector, there's things that many believe could be done and that uh, perhaps our sanctions could be used more effectively, you know, issue by issue to try to, to get movement on those things and preserve what institutions are left. So meanwhile, the, uh, the economy continues in a very dire straits, and uh, I'm just not sure how the bulk of the population survives. I mean, it's the stories that come out of, uh, of Venezuela are, are incredibly scary. Um, how do you view that? Yeah, I, I made a trip there in um, October, and um, my first time there, so I didn't have anything to compare it with, but, but talking to those that had been either lived there or had been there for a number of years. They said that that there's a lot more uh, visible ac economic activity now than there would have been two years ago, and that's a function of a couple things. Um, the economy has been largely dollarized, so you see dollars everywhere. Things are purchased in dollars, um, and that has really kind of sparked a bit of an economic mini economic boom. But it's a very upper class boom. It's not something that hits the, the people in general too much. I mean, there's a little bit, little bit better economic picture at the, at the lower levels. Uh, inflation is not as bad as it was. So there's some of the 
but it's still it's still a real grind for the people. I was in the Patari neighborhood, one of the real rough neighborhoods in um, not rough. It's one of the real <clears throat> real struggling neighborhoods in in Paracas, and it, it was you know you could see you could see hunger. I mean, it was a place where people were not getting enough to eat, and really there was a day to day struggle for everything. So <clears throat> I guess it's you know again a little bit of a reprieve, a little bit better for everybody, not enough to get over the the food insecurity that is that it hits most of the country and then a bit of a mini boom at the top. Um, there's also the dynamic that dollars can kind of come in, but they can't leave. So there's an investment boom going on as well, a mini investment boom. Uh, so, you know, they'll bring dollars in, but it's hard to, in, to invest them abroad or get them back out again. And so that's been part of <clears throat> part of what you see as well is, you know, again, a lot of spending within the country. And again, even some construction, some investment um in in new companies new new concerns and, and stuff like that but still just a real a real grind slightly more positive uh, uh scene than i expected that you were going to mention regarding the economic situation in the meantime the opposition um how coordinated um impressive drop in support for guaido i don't quite understand how that came about um what can you tell us about the opposition yeah, the, the drop in, in support for Guaido was, was, I think, mainly a function of it was just very hard for this interim government that he led to produce on the things that people care about. And I guess that, that's the main message, I think, that comes out just over and over again is people want to see the practical stuff. They're, they're really beyond politics. And this was interesting. This was very clear in the last election, but people have just had it with any either side. The Ninis are like, you know, two thirds or more of the country. There's a handful, 12% perhaps on, on each side, Chavista in, in opposition. People did go to vote because I think they saw, as I read it, they saw there was value in voting, certainly at the local levels where these officials were going to have some ability to impact their lives, but they just want things to get better for their indiv individual lives. They're not interested in, in the abstractions of politics. I think that's where both sides have just uh, bottomed out their support. And there's a message there, I think, that, you know, it's no point in calling, you know, whose fault it is, but in, but politics in Venezuela has not produced for people, and that's what they most want to see. Um, so the opposition is going through some, um, some struggles to try to uh, rebrand itself, to be able to deliver on uh, the things that people care about. <clears throat> I think there's a real effort on the part of the opposition to, you know, to figure out the leadership question, which is, is kind of looming. Guaido is dynamic, really intelligent, sharp uh, young man that's done really courageous things over the last few years. There's a question of how to broaden the coalition that he represents, how to bring in people uh, from other parties that have not been a part of things up until now. Fuerza Vecinal was a new party in the last election did relatively well. They won some seats and or some some mayoral contests. I think a governorship or two. So they you know they they deserve to be represented somewhere. Um, so there's and there's the what they call these alacranes. The alacranes, uh, kind of a nasty term in Venezuela for these parties that have been you know willing to collaborate or not collaborate, cooperate with the the regime. Um, and they, you know, but they still represent an awful lot of people that are, you know, they're not Chavistas, but they, they are in the opposition, but they're not uh, hardline in terms of opposition to the government, to the regime. They'll co cooperate with them on different, uh, different matters. So those, those guys also are kind of out of the, 
the routine, the the the, uh, the the unitary platform. So there's kind of a question of representation. Then there's going to be a question of leadership. How do they? What process or method do they use to restore <clears throat> uh, leadership to uh, that that is broadly representative and that is transparently selected? And I think that's going to be another issue that they'll face in the next year. All of this, of course, leads up to 2024 when the next election will take place. And I think most sides are now kind of resigned that that's the next big event. I think the notion that there's a way to uh, get to a change before then, I think is you don't hear much uh, at all from Venezuelans. They're pretty much resigned to the fact that 2024 is the next opportunity. Meanwhile, at the border and with neighboring countries, what, what is the situation? Um, how active have uh, some of the neighbors, Colombia, Brazil, other countries have been? Uh, and overall, what has been the region's uh, role, um, you know, South America, Central America, regarding uh, the situation in Venezuela? Yeah, the main the main issue for the region, of course, is is migrants, and it's really a stunning number of migrants. It's almost six million across seventeen countries, most of them in Latin America. <clears throat> Could reach seven point five, according to UNHCR, by the end of the year. So, you know, my again, rosy picture for the elites in the economy doesn't extend to the common people that are that are, that are continuing to leave the country in fairly rapid numbers, uh, but not like they were a few years ago. So. But there's a there's a real there's a drain on the economies of all the neighboring countries. Colombia, of course, is the hardest hit. They have the most, 1.8 million, uh, and it's and they've they've been in, incredibly generous towards them. They remember when the the Venezuelans took them in during their civil war in in large numbers, but not in these numbers, and frankly, in an economy that, that at that time needed labor uh, in a way that Colombian economy doesn't exactly need labor. They have allowed them to work and found things for them to do, but it's not like it was, you know, the Venezuela of the 70s and 80s where they really needed the workers. So it's a, it's a very generous act on their part. They've given them status, taking care of medical and, and education and everything else for the kids. So really quite a, a gesture by the Colombians without a whole lot of international help, frankly. There's some, but not certainly not on, on the level to cover it all and not the kind that Syria would have gotten or some of the other crisis areas. Um, and then... Brazil is, is really just refugee. Well, Colombia also has got this very tense dynamic on the border with the ELN guerrillas kind of taking sanctuary in Venezuela. There's this big kind of zone that's not terribly well controlled uh, by the Venezuelan uh, regime or, or either side, frankly. So there's a big uh, kind of a gray zone there that, uh, that allows for an awful lot of criminality and, and the cross-border kind of stuff you see in any, any um, uh, ungoverned space. So that, that goes on as well. In Brazil, it's it's so remote to get to Brazil. They're, the migrants are far fewer. It's remote to get there. And then once they get there, they're in a part of Brazil that's remote from the rest of Brazil. So there's been just a lot fewer. Colombia, you get right into Cucuta and, you know, a few hours later, if you get the right bus, you're in Bucaramanga or something. So, but uh, yeah, Brazil much less, but still, you know, still sizable numbers. Um, and then again, they've kind of panned out through the rest of the hemisphere. The hemisphere itself, I mean, the OAS was um, under Almagro was was very seized with the Venezuela crisis, kind of took sides, made it difficult for them to be a, a mediator or moderator of any kind. Um, but they took sides and were, you know, so and kind of in a way precluded them having certain roles, um, which is kind of where I think they still are. So the, the OAS, the kind of work that they would have done in Central America in the 80s is not really 
an option. Um, but you've got, uh, you have the Lima group that formed up of hemispheric players um, to try to, they were kind of, again, kind of, they were in favor of the maximum pressure campaign. And there was a, an effort to try to, outside the OAS, to have a regional organization that would try to look for solutions to the Venezuela crisis. But, but everyone kind of got caught up with the, uh, the advent of the Guaido government uh, two plus years ago with that as the, the way out. And since it hasn't panned out, a lot of these efforts have kind of fallen off. Um, so, you know, it'll come up at the summit in June. It'll be a, a talked about, but I don't know that there's any real new ideas on the table uh, from these from these kind of circles. Um, I mean, on the other side of the country, the, the border with Guyana is actually interesting. That's the one place where the opposition and the government agree that a third of Guyana should have, should be Venezuelan territory. So like one of the negotiations, I think it was the first declaration in one of the negotiations, it was agreement that they, they really ought to get back a third of Guyana. So, I mean, at least there's one thing they yeah. totally agree on. That's a very common, common Venezuelan position. Meanwhile, in the US proper, um, you know, the Venezuelan community in Miami and other cities, uh, Congress, uh, business, um, um, what is the major narrative coming out of the US uh, from all these different interest groups? Well, the, the strongest one is still from, from the kind of, I guess I would just say the hardline, call it the hardline position in Florida, which is not to, to give an inch. And the idea is that if, if there's anything conceded to Maduro, he would just double down, pocket that, and then, and then move on uh, without any real concessions himself. So it's a bit of an all or nothing. We either win the whole contest and we keep the pressure on at maximum levels until we win, but there's not a lot of room for the kind of nuance and interim measures that I think most Venezuelans would be in favor of right now. So it's, but that's the approach is not to give an inch. And it's very popular in certain circles of Florida. I think it's hard to get around. I think both parties will be very sensitive to that in the lead up to the November November elections. So it's a bit of a, uh, it puts a chill on some of the things that probably could be done in, in the interim to make things a little bit better for the Venezuelan people and certainly to, um, to advance towards uh, reinstitutionalization as they call it, and ultimately have the, the, the means to, to make uh, progress on, on a negotiation. One of the tricks of course is the US has got the only leverage on behalf of the democratic opposition. So unless the US is materially involved, it's hard for them to, to exercise anything productive. And that, that's been kind of one of the problems, I think, again, up until now is the US pressure is not really um, deployed, if you will. In, in a way that's productive. There's others in Congress and there's a, a Venezuela caucus now that is not in the Congress, but a Venezuela um, caucus outside the Congress, but that is, is trying to be helpful on, on different, uh, on solutions to the conflict. Um, but there's, so there's, you know, there's, there's others that are involved uh, more on the negotiation side, more pro-negotiation, more looking at a, again, a negotiated solution to the conflict. There's a number of, of, of congresspersons and senators in that camp. Um, but I think one of the things that is, is hard for them is there's not something right now to get behind. And I guess that's one of the things that we would love to see is a little bit more of a, you know, what is this thing on the, on the pro 
negotiation side that one could get behind because there's not something right now other than just returning to the table and and trying to advance. But um, again, we get back to this notion of a roadmap. If there was something more defined that one could say, yeah, this this would make a difference, then that might uh, might be something that people could could rally around and could use as a as a thing to advance. Has there been a role for other outside parties, uh, the EU, for example, China, possibly like Cuba? Um, how do these other outside players, what role have they had recently regarding Venezuela? Yeah, on the, on the regime side, of course, there's been Iran, Turkey, um, China, Russia. Uh, the Russia thing, again, very complicated now, but those have been the countries that have been helpful in either Kind of breaking the blockade, if you will, um, you know, getting around sanctions. Uh, the Chinese early on put a lot of money into the Venezuelan oil sector. They soon realized they were not getting any of that money back, and it was not the kind of investment that they were they, they would they would do. So they 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 retained political support, but have been very reluctant to put any new money into the country. And and Russia has been important on the on the military side, a little bit on oil. So I think both of them see. They see it a little bit different. I mean, Russia, I think it's more directly a way to stick it to the United States in its backyard. China, I think it really is more just part of a hemispheric strategy of trying to, to build support anywhere and everywhere with no, you know, no, um, no nod to, to democracy, morality, or anything like that. They just want the partners. I think it's much more pragmatic for them. Um, I don't think either side is, you know, really again, going to go to bat for Venezuela at the end of the day. It's an unfortunate relationship because they're countries that have absolutely nothing to offer in the long term. But, you know, Venezuela is kind of stuck with them as the, the ones that will continue to support it um, when, you know, Miami is just you know, a three-hour plane ride away. So it's really unfortunate, I think, that it's, it's come to this. And then Turkey and Iran, again, also kind of just ways to stick it to the United States, exert their independence, show that we don't have to follow the rules and we'll do what we want, but not, you know, bit players, not really major players. And then on the other side, um, the EU has been very helpful and a number of countries have got a very special relationship with Venezuela, the Canadians, the Germans, um, the Norwegians, of course, because of the, of the negotiations. The Swedes were involved in the negotiated track at one point. Uh, the Swiss even have a, a kind of a a different, a unique relationship, the Spanish. So there's a number of, of different players there. It's never really come together. I mean, there's been EU initiatives and um, on the margins of the negotiations or even trying to spark maybe a new kind of negotiation, but not, not in the way that we saw in Central America, for example, in the 80s with the Contadora group and things like that, that in the end were very effective. Cuba is, a, is an interesting player. I think in a certain context could be helpful to a negotiated way out. But I think, you know, also, of course, they've got so many issues themselves. And I think that's gotten almost worse rather than better. But I think there is a certain place where they could play a positive role the way they did with the Colombian peace talks. But it would, it would require them having guarantees, I think, on their end, which the U.S. would probably be reluctant to to provide. So, it, you know, everything is like there's something going on everywhere and there's not enough going on anywhere. So in, that's practical kind of, terms, know, how does, in practical terms, how does diplomacy work? Uh, the official diplomatic uh, footprint of Venezuela um, in different capitals? Is Are there two ambassadors? Or how mm -hmm. there, there, 
who does yeah we talk to you know <laughs> there has been for it was very complicated the supporting the guaido uh, interim government was a very bold move um, that frankly doesn't really have precedent. It, it has not really been done before where a, a government is recognized that is not the same government that's in control of a country. The closest was, there was one case in Africa, Gabon or something where there was a coup and we recognized somebody, but it, you know, wasn't, it, it took a little bit, a little bit of time to sort out. And then of course the, the government's in exile from World War II you know, they, but these were, these were established governments that were conquered and then off they went to, to Britain or wherever. There was a number of the, the occupied territories in World War II that we recognized the, the, the original government, not the, the kind of Vichy government that came in behind it. So, th but this was very unique, I think, in history to, to again, recognize a, uh, a government um, in a country. The other thing was, you know, Guaido was not in exile. It would have been very different if he'd been in exile, but he was in the country. So, you know, the, the regime allowed it to play out. They didn't, I think they just didn't feel threatened enough by it to, to really crack down. They did a lot of things on the margins to make his life miserable and his families and others, but they, you know, it was something they allowed to play out. Uh, meanwhile, you did have his uh, effort, the, the interim government tried to establish a number of embassies did did establish a number of embassies, including one, of course, in Washington. That's led by Ambassador Vecchio, a good friend of mine, and and they, you know, they have these embassies around the world. And in in fact, in many countries, they they allow both to function. Uh, many countries had to choose one or the other, and some have gone back and forth. So it's been a very complicated diplomatic arrangement. Um, the Maduro government would like to get back to just being the single representative of the Venezuelan people abroad. There's a lot of people, even in civil society and the opposition that wonders whether that wouldn't be easier at some point, because then you've got a clear opposition that is not pretending to govern, but without the means to govern, govern and a clear government that they are opposed to. So that the, the messaging and the mechanics of that have gotten a little bit muddled, but there's a there's a big another big thing involved there, which is the resources. So there's an awful lot of resources abroad that when the interim government was recognized, it was then given control of those of those resources. So that's something that would also, again, these are the kind of things that make it a little bit tricky at this point to, to change course. I think for the time being, you know, the interim government stays, the Maduro regime stays, um, you know, people have to deal with both of them for different issues and, and it's a it's a kind of an odd situation, but you know, obviously not untenable because here we are two and a half years later and everyone's still standing. We're quickly uh, reaching the end. So given all of this, um, what is the um, the roadmap for use of in regarding Venezuela in the very near future? Um, so we, we, we try to work with all sides. Um, we try to maintain good relations with, with both sides uh, in the conflict and, and have been able to do that up until now. We work a lot with civil society. There's a lot of very dynamic uh, and exciting civil society initiatives. There's uh, a lot of women peace builders in Venezuela that really, I think, need support and probably uh, have many of the answers the country is seeking if they could be further empowered. We work with youth peace, peace builders, mostly at the community level, and they have you know, projects and presence um, we try to message as best we can this notion of democratic coexistence as the way forward. 
Um, in Washington, where there's a, a there's a number of us think tanks that are on that that side of things that are, you know, less trying to find how to add pressure and more trying to find how to, to uh, to do the the hard work of democratic coexistence. Um, and then we uh, we have so we support a number of these initiatives. Again, the roadmap is one that we have tried to promote in different ways and look for for how we could uh, we could be helpful in in uh, building on that concept in a way that's practical and could be, could be uh, initiated. Um, again, messaging, democratic coexistence, we support organizations that are seeking uh, the, the center in Venezuela, Reunificados is, is one good example where there's uh, just an effort to try to get the Venezuelan to pe people to think about the, uh, the unity that they should be feeling as a people rather than you know, polarization that has been imposed on them politically in, in this Chavista, anti-Chavista model. Um, so a number of programs like that, a lot of contacts. Uh, we try to write and publish when we can to, to get different ideas out there. We did an analysis in the fall with uh, our colleagues at WOLA, the Washington Office on Latin America on the negotiations and looking at how those could be and should be structured. And then I guess the final thing we work on a good bit is the inclusion of civil society in the talks and that's something that we're we feel strongly about there's got to be a a good way for civil society to to be involved in the talks in a material way so that they're both their expertise comes to the table and they can take what's on the table when when it's the right time back out to the people and help sell it so you know something that we've learned from other peace processes is really a critical component and we have some experts that are that are working on how to do that how to best do that Good work. You mentioned you went down to Venezuela for the first time in October, but we know you're an old Andean hand, and we couldn't let you leave without asking you for any, um, for one or two special recommendations when in the region. Um, after all these years living and traveling in the region, what would you recommend as, uh, as one or two um, special recommendations? Well, if you get to Venezuela, I do think, um, I asked my driver, I said, I want to understand, you know, the roots and the essence of Chavismo. And, and we tried to figure out where to do that. So he took me to the uh, Fuerte de la Montaña, the fort on the mountain, which is where Chavez attempted his first coup. It's now where he's buried. But it's a small military installation, you know, just up one of the neighborhoods of Caracas. Very interesting place. And I think that's where you can kind of get a sense for you know, what Chavismo is, is all about. Uh, in Colombia, I went, uh, my son was down there writing for a few months in Cartagena and I went down and visited him, but we, we took a trip to someplace. I've lived in Colombia and know a lot of the country well, but I'd never been to the Tirona National Park. That's a really beautiful place. It's just up from uh, Santa Marta. And it's, it's really creatively designed where you've got these very protected, perfectly protected beaches and you kind of go up from your camp, wherever it is, uh, up to a trail, walk along the trail, maybe a quarter mile up from the beach or a kilometer up from the beach, walk along the trail through this beautiful jungle and then come down to the beach, which again has no, no buildings or anything. It's really a, a, a special place. And then there's these ancient, um, this ancient city, Ciudad um, de um, Perdida, that uh, you can go see really neat place that's got um, that's that uh, um, has these these ruins and terraces and, and things like that so really a, a neat place uh, to spend a week fantastic 
Keith, our time is up. This has been an incredibly useful look at the current situation in Venezuela. We very much appreciate your time joining us today. Come back soon. Great, thank you. Right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening and supporting EconoPolitics. Please spread the word and let us know what you think. We wish to thank Dominic Wachter for our new artwork and Yusef Nem for the original music. Tune in again next time for another episode of EconoPolitics. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for another episode of EconoPolitics.